Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. You know, I said earlier, getting fired was the best thing that ever happened to me. So was having to get off the news hamster wheel and, and not have to care so much. I used to spend Saturday nights, you know, I'd be in bed. I'd be worried about what's going to happen Sunday morning. What, what should I do on my show? What guests should I have on? To be off makes me think a lot differently about the news ecosystem and like how the news world functions and sometimes doesn't function. We oftentimes have the most interest in a news story when there's the least amount of information. You know, yeah. something's breaking news and you know we really know absolutely nothing about it, but that's when everybody wants to know everything. And then right. by the time we actually know all the facts, on almost the everybody's moved on. There's yeah. gotta be a better way. I'm John Favreau, welcome to Offline. Maybe the outtake this week should be Linda Yaccarino. Oh my god, we cannot cannot fucking get enough. <laughs> Welcome to Offline. I'm John Favreau. I'm Max Fisher. You just heard Brian Stelter, media reporter. We had a great conversation about the Murdoch succession drama at Fox and the future of media in the internet age. So uh, we're going to hear that a little bit later. But first, Max and I are going to talk about the government's new antitrust lawsuit against Amazon and new ex-CEO Linda Yaccarino's disastrous attempt to defend Elon Musk during one of the most uncomfortable interviews I've ever heard. Oh my God, it's garbage fires across Silicon Valley <laughs> lately. <laughs> that... it's, it's not a good run for our pals up north. You're going to want to you're just going to want to listen in until you hear the uh, the Linda Yaccarino excerpt that we're going to play because it's good stuff. It's really something. And then you're going to want to watch the whole thing. I've truly never heard anything like it. No. But first, the writer's strike is over. The Hollywood Studios and the Writers Guild of America have reached an agreement. Lots of big wins for the writers. And one of the big sticking points that we've been talking about on the show mm -hmm. was over the use of artificial intelligence. The agreement essentially says that studios can use AI written material, but if they give writers a draft of a script or screenplay that uh, was written by artificial intelligence, they have to A, disclose it, B, give the writers full credit. Mm -hmm. There's a part in there that says like, uh, we agree that artificial intelligence is not human and therefore cannot get a writing credit. It's like, oh, wow, great. Um, wow, way to, way to dunk on the open AI. I in love with Kevin Roos and still not a human? Come on. Where's your compassion? Uh, and I think probably the most important provision, they have to pay the writers exactly what they would have if mm -hmm. the writers had written the original draft themselves. So you can't say like all right, here's the draft script and we're just going to pay you for a punch up or a rewrite or whatever. They have to pay them for the original and then the writers get the original credit. There's some other stuff in the agreement on AI, but let's start there. 
first battle of humans versus the machines, who won? I honestly think it's a pretty good compromise because the the kind of the give and take is they can use AI. You can use the tools. It's not banished from writer rooms. It's not banished from studios. But it cannot be used by a studio to substitute either credit or payment for a writer. So it's not going to be, at least if everyone follows the spirit and litter of this, not going to be putting writers out of work, not going to be losing credits, not going to be losing money for it. I think one of the risks here was always that if they try to completely banish AI, then there's just going to be AI is still going to exist. Mm -hmm. So you're just waiting to be kind of competed out. But this allows everyone to kind of coexist with it in a way that seems like a really good compromise. It does not solve the AI problem. And there's meaningfully, there's some provisions in here that basically hunt and say, if the law later says that you can't train AI or there are limits on how much you can train AI on human written material, then we'll come back to that later. But if this becomes the model for how we kind of deal with AI's role in intellectual property, I think that's pretty good. Yeah. And like, we should say that at first, the writers were demanding like, no, no AI. Right. And the studios came back with how about a meeting once a year? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so this is de definitely an improvement on that. Yeah. The, the one thing I worry about, and, and this is probably longer term, mm. is so, yeah, if the studio gives writers an AI script and says, all right, this is it's a little too chat GPT. We got to punch this up. Right. Then they're then they're set. Right. They're not going to get undercut in, in terms of their wages. But what happens if a studio is like turns out a draft AI script and then is like, eh, that's pretty good. We're good to go. Yeah. So right, that, that right. and it's not it's not at that level yet, but I'm thinking about my conversation with Simon Rich from last week and I do wonder if it now I don't know how you would have guarded against that in the negotiations because I mean the only way you'd basically have to say studios must never be able to use artificial intelligence on its own without a writer. Right. I mean, I think that's that's a good point. And we're negotiating around, I mean, WGA, SAG, everybody's negotiating around AI as it is right now, which is probably shrewdest for everyone involved because you don't want to make huge concessions for some version of AI that may turn out to never actually right. come about. But, you know, I think that you're right that this is going to have to be revisited probably many times in the future as AI gets more and more sophisticated. Alex Winter, who is a director, actor, writer, wrote a piece in Wired where he raised a couple of objections to it that I think are worth considering. I'm curious for getting your thoughts on them. Number one was that, like, the studios will just lie his his concern about what what they're actually training the AI on, what they're actually using the AI for. You can't trust them. You have to assume that they will cut corners at every opportunity. And number two, and this is the one that I thought was actually really smart, is that the studios need to acknowledge or need to consider something that they haven't, which is that the AI companies themselves could actually be the real threat here, much in the ways that studios did not take the threat of streamers seriously and that streamers could come in and actually displace their entire business. You know, OpenAI, whatever AI company, they could at one point decide we're going to make our own movie production studio, our own TV production studio, where we're not hampered by these agreements with labor and we can do whatever we want. And the studios and the actors and the writers need to understand they're all on the same team and facing that threat. I think that's a the, that second point is a very good one because you could definitely see that happening, which is why I think, and of course the actors are still on strike, SAG is still on strike, right. and that's going to be important because you could see one of these tech companies eventually having everything they need 
to create films and television except the actors. Right. Um, and Which they're getting they're, closer on. They're, yeah, they're trying to do, but right. if they can uh, make sure that they don't get the actors' likenesses without some, at least some negotiation, then they can't do that. So I think it's going to be important for the actors to stand for. I think the what the actors want on AI mm-hmm. is going to be an even bigger deal than right. on the writing side. On the lying, yeah, so obviously don't trust the studios, <laughs> but what I've always, and I've heard this from some people in Hollywood, like, a real worry is not necessarily right now that um, AI is going to churn out a great script, but that studios can use AI to churn out a premise yeah, for a television show, for an episode, for a movie even. And then the studio says, well, this is ours. It comes from the studio. And so therefore they don't have to pay for that like sort of original, the, 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 the idea for the premise, right? And I think under this agreement, it depends on how you read it, you know, it says AI can't generate any or source material, literary material without credit. But what's to stop some executive sitting in a meeting being like, hey, we have an idea. Right. 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 And and it's it's actually, who knows where it's actually, actually going to come comes from. from uh, the computer. Yeah. And there's, you know, the uh, the uh, kind of the thing to consider is that this has always been an issue with just IP. It's, you know, there's always been this question of like, well, a studio comes up with a script. Did they kind of borrow that idea from a book or from a novel or from a nonfiction book? And this is something that has just had to be, wor- you, they, we've had to work out the norms over time, basically through the courts. And now studios are pretty good about like, they'll be safe and they'll just buy out the rights for something before they make a script. They're very aggressive about buying IP rights for books and and um articles but that had to happen by people suing and just forcing them to be proactive about it so i think we're probably going to this is probably one step in a long negotiation over these norms some other related ai news even though i know very little spanish despite taking it (laughs) five for five years um you may soon be able to hear me max and other podcast hosts speak that language and others fluently when you listen to our shows, Spotify just rolled just out. Just to be clear, that's not an announcement. No, no, no. <laughs> Spotify just rolled. Out, I was going to. Yeah. Spotify just rolled out a new AI-powered voice translation, which lets you listen to podcasts in other languages in the host's own voice. So their initial experiment is uh, only English to Spanish right now. They have a few of their big name hosts that are associated with Spotify: Bill Simmons, Dak Shepard. Uh, an upcoming podcast, I believe, by Trevor Noah. No word yet on when they'll do other languages or other hosts. Like I said, we, we haven't heard anything yet. Crooked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming you're just going to pop down one day. I'm going to hear Farsi coming in through the microphone. <laughs> um, what do you think about that? So, <laughs> <laughs> so there are a few companies that are doing some version of immediate simultaneous translation in the original voice of the speaker. And you look at these videos and it's really amazing. Mm. And I think this is kind of miraculous. Like I know I've been kind of a skeptic of AI. I've been kind of a curmudgeon. Like I think this is really cool. I think that it's important to like think a little critically about what it can actually do and cannot do. I spent a long time as a foreign reporter trying to work across the language barrier. And I think that this is going to be really transformative in some ways. The idea that you can sit down and have a Zoom call with someone who doesn't speak your native language and can just freely converse with them is is amazing. I mean, technologically, it's incredible. I mean, potentially world-changing. <laughs> so I, that's kind of the question. I have been thinking a lot about this. Like, what are the actual uses for it? I think like, forget that- about, and we're not saying that uh, li- being able to listen to podcasts is world changing. <laughs> no, our but, like- takes in Brazilian Portuguese <laughs> will will save the world. 
but it's, you, it's right there in if, the podcast if you, name. If you play this out so that AI right. what is, what is, is now has for, the power right. to break down language barriers between people right. instantaneously, right. that that becomes a difference. So the thing that I, and I'm curious what you're kind of like imagining with this. I think the really revolutionary uses are going to be, I think the biggest one is going to be movies and TV. And like, this will be a big thing, I am sure, with the SAG negotiations. But oh, yeah. there's an entire world of entertainment out there that is not in your native language, whether you're an English speaker or, or speak another language. And like dubs and subtitles never quite cut it. Like you never get the experience. You never get the full effect of the acting. And the idea that AI can now solve for that. So you can watch a German TV show and you're hearing the original actor's voice and seeing them say the lines in English. That's amazing. And I think that is going to open up a lot of like art and culture and entertainment for a lot of people that it's previously it's been kind of difficult to access. Um, I think one of the big uses is going to be business meetings. A lot of international businesses where they're trying to talk across different languages, it's going to be a lot easier to have those conversations now. And I think it will be... governments and like, I'm thinking about the UN, thinking about like, yeah, like yeah. bilateral meetings that we've been part of on foreign trips, I'm thinking of. Right, like, it's right. just, uh, it's if, it's very interesting. Well, talk more about it from a the perspective of someone who's been, who's done journalism abroad. So I've tried to do a lot of interviews in person, over the phone, over Zoom, across a language barrier with a translator, and it it sucks. It's terrible. I mean, it's like you can do amazing things talking to people, but it's just like the barrier socially and emotionally that gets introduced when you're talking through a translator, when you're talking through Google Translate, like really makes it hard to connect with someone. And the idea that I could now, as a reporter, do a Zoom interview with someone where it will feel to both of us like we're speaking in each other's native languages, even if the translation isn't perfect, I think we'll do really incredible things. The idea that I could call up a, a dissident in Iran and we could have a natural free-flowing conversation, you're just going to get much better answers. You're going to get a much better sense of the story you are trying to report. And I think there's that's journalism, but there are lots of applications to it. At the same time, Forms of this technology have existed for a long time, right? Like they're, like the Google Translate app, you can like hold it up to someone you were talking to on the street and you both speak into it and it will speak the translation back and forth. And that has never been able to bridge the language divide because it, it's just awkward. Mm. It's just like, if you've ever tried to use it, it's just really hard to have a conversation that way. So in some ways, the like the AI is not going to be able to solve that. So like your vacations to France, it's still going to be awkward when you go to the cafe. Like you're still going to be reading out of a phrase book. Like the like, tower Excuse me, can still we exists. actually zoom for a second? So just talk <laughs> right, in person? Yeah, right, so there's right, going to be a little of that. Right, yeah. I think it's easy to see those videos and be like the language barrier of overall. We've toppled the Tower of Babel. And like as someone who has worked with more rudimentary versions of this, like the big barrier was never the speed and efficiency of the translation. It was actually speaking through an app or a website is like really the big limitation, which we haven't solved yet. So we're not at universal translators, but this is still really cool. I yeah, my, my first reaction was excitement. And then I'll throw out like two things that give me pause. One, we were talking about this in one of our Slack channels here at Crooked. And you mentioned sort of this, this is going to be part of future WGA negotiations. People here brought up, okay, well, if there's probably, if we're translating podcasts, mm -hmm. Aren't there podcasts right now that are translated? And isn't that taking human jobs for sure for people who translate podcasts right now? I think that's true to an extent that there are currently podcasts where there are the hosts and then there are two other people who are just translating Max and John for a 
for a new uh, audience, right? What a dream job. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> poor, poor people should get, should get hazard pay for that. Um, so to the extent that's happening, yes, that has to be. But, but there's also a whole bunch of podcasts that would never be translated yeah. to other languages and no one would ever pay people to translate them. Right. And so there's a whole bunch of people in other countries who would get access to that. Mm-hmm. And people also mentioned there that like, what is lost culturally when you translate, right? Because translation, even if it's perfect, sometimes you just lose the cultural meaning. So there's that. And then the other thing I thought about is we have talked a lot on this show about sort of the dangers of the whole world being connected on social media. And like maybe we are all meant to be connected on this large scale. And suddenly if we are now connecting the whole globe and breaking down language barriers, like what does that do for people who are trying to uh, cause some trouble? Yeah, that's true. And I like I can't think of anything that any risks that are created by this, but I would have said the same thing about Facebook 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it is there's a been a pattern of just like open up all the links, connect everybody and then just wait to see what happens. One of the big things that I worry about is spoofing. Um uh, yeah. Not so much like high level political disinformation, because, you know, if you have a lot of money to spend on disinformation, you could always fake somebody's voice. But how easy it will be now to get, you know, a recording of someone on YouTube and spoof their voice if you're trying to, you know, get their credit card information or try to get their passwords. And the idea that you could be get a weird call from your buddy or a family member and you only find out later it's a spammer in Moldova trying to get you to, you know, read out your pin code is, you know, that's a little scary. Love it says we all need uh, safe words. Okay. What's yours? <laughs> I, I have not picked it yet. But okay. I keep saying okay. that every time we talk okay. about AI voice thing. And I think that's probably true. That's um, terrifying. Yeah. All right. Some more news this week about the government going after big tech monopolies. Uh, this is from the Associated Press. U.S. regulators in 17 states are suing Amazon over allegations the e-commerce behemoth abuses its position in the marketplace to inflate prices on and off its platform, overcharge sellers and stifle competition, one of the most significant legal challenges in the company's nearly 30-year history. New York Times headline was a bit spicier. Uh, <laughs> Lena Khan versus Jeff Bezos. This is big tech's real cage match. Uh, Lena Khan runs the Federal Trade Commission, which is bringing the lawsuit. She's been an antitrust scholar and crusader for years. And, and specifically, specifically right. argued that the dangers of monopolies aren't just about high prices for consumers, mm-hmm. but about lack of competition. Right. Um, what's your read on this one? I think this is the big one. I think this is the really big antitrust battle, like maybe of our time. I mean, they have a pretty slam dunk case, I think, that Amazon uses its complete domination of the marketplace as the big online seller, where it's like 40% of all online dollars or something are through Amazon to do. One thing that it might be like hard to connect with is just like a regular person has this affect me, but I think like to try to show the effects of it on society like they use this position to squeeze retailers if you sell something you have to sell it through amazon and that means you have to sell it on amazon's terms so amazon can just tell you we're taking 35 percent. it used to be 19 percent. now we're taking a third and you have to lower your prices because we want your price to be lower and you have to use our distributors and do all these things where it's now basically impossible for a retailer to make much money at all because amazon is capturing all of that money not because they earned it through the value they provided, but just because they are exploiting their it's like, control. Where else are you going to sell 
your products. Where else are you going to sell your products, right? And the thing that I think makes it really dangerous for society, but that is also the big target for LenaCon and the FTC, is they are using their control of the online seller marketplace to unfairly dominate other markets. Like Amazon also makes a lot of products, right? They make, you know, toilet paper. And the fact that they control basically the prices in the marketplace because they can dictate it means that they can set their toilet paper at the lowest price. They can push their toilet paper in front of more consumers. And that means that they can make the quality of toilet... I know it's, it's, not, it's, it's a weird example to pick. They can make the I overall quality of toilet it. paper... <laughs> Worse, because what determines the toilet paper that dominates the market is no longer the best price, the best product. It's whatever Amazon wants to be in front Ugh. of consumers. So we're going to get some scratchy toilet paper. Well, to use an, ex- <laughs> <laughs> to use an example that's like close to my heart, books. Yeah. Uh, so like just to show that I'm not like knee jerk anti tech, I actually think that Amazon initially was good for the book market. Like there any bookseller, no matter how much you love your local bookshop, only stocks a tiny percent of any of the books printed at any given moment. So that means you can't access most books. If you write a book, it means you're unless it's a mega bestseller, you can only reach certain consumers, the bookstores that are able to stock your book, and it's only there for a limited amount of time. With Amazon, consumer can access any book pretty much ever written for as long as they want. If you're a bookseller, it means you can reach consumers for as long as you want, if you're a book writer, rather. So that's really good for everybody. But where it becomes unfair is now Amazon says, we are going to make an e-reader. We're going to make a Kindle. And you know, I have a Kindle. I love it. It's a great piece of equipment. But what they use is they use their dominance of the bookseller marketplace to go to publishers and to say, you know, normally when you print a, a, a physical book, you negotiate the price with booksellers and you kind of meet at this equilibrium where you share the profits. It works equitably for everyone. For e-readers, we're going to set the price. We're going to tell you that it's half the price of a book and we are going to take a much, much larger share of the profits from the sale of any book for us because we control the marketplace so we can set the price where we want. Books publishers have no choice but to agree to these really stilted terms. And what that means is if you write a book, more and more in your book sales now go to e-reader sales because Amazon can artificially lower the price of an e-reader product whereas they can't with a book and you take a much smaller share of that. So even if more books are being sold, the publishers and the authors get much less money for it, which means it's much harder to make a book commercially viable because Amazon is exploiting its control of the marketplace, take a larger share. So there are fewer books in the world. And that's bad for everybody. There's less knowledge being produced. There's fewer novels. So I think that's a longer path to get there for the average person thinking about this, right? Because I think what Amazon has been thinking and their whole theory for a very long time Mm -hmm. is, well, we're going to sell at the lowest prices possible. So we're going to please the consumer and we're going to deliver faster than anyone else. And so from a consumer standpoint, you want cheap stuff. Mm-hmm. You want uh, any book that you want. You want choice. You want that's great. And their argument, of course, is how could this be monopolistic? Because the consumer is getting unlimited choice at great prices, super fast delivery. And I think what Lena Khan has been arguing over these years is like, no, no, no. The lack of competition in the market actually does hurt consumers in the end for the reasons that you and for and for reasons that are bigger than just prices right and this is what we talked about with google too where i mean google like amazon initially dominated because they had a great product and they delivered it really well but they reach a certain point where they have effective monopoly control and this is just like textbook every company does this where once they have an effective monopoly the entire orientation of the business shifts 
from how can we make the best product so we can win over consumers to how do we leverage our control of the marketplace to extract more value while delivering fewer services. What do you think could happen here? Do they Would they break up Amazon? So Lena Khan has been, she's been cagey on whether they would ask for Amazon to be broken up. That does seem like a pretty clear remedy yeah. here. The fact that Amazon both controls the marketplace and also makes all these products is just an incredible conflict of interest in terms of serving consumers. Maybe they'd but, spin off the product part from the Yeah, exactly, right. Or the e-reader becomes a different company. Uh, but they have also said that they are going to ask for injunctions to stop some of these anti-competitive behaviors like ratcheting up the share of the profits that they take from retailers, which has almost doubled in the last few years. Well, that should be an interesting one to, uh, to watch. Finally, Linda Yaccarino, the CEO of the company formerly known as Twitter, <laughs> gave a, a, a truly wild, cringeworthy interview at the Code Conference this week. So she had been booked a long time ago to sit down with CNBC's Julia Borston. Like her first big interview, right? Yeah, that's right. First big interview. Um, but she found out on the day of her interview that our old pal Kara Swisher had booked a special guest to speak an hour before her. The old Swisherino. <laughs> <laughs> Yoel Roth, Twitter's former head of trust and safety, who told the crowd how he received death threats and had to sell his house after Elon Musk publicly accused him of sexualizing children. Publicly uh, and falsely, we should say. Falsely, yeah. Uh, after he left the company because Yoel spoke out against, you know, criticized Elon. And so he said, oh, you're an advocate for sexualizing children. That's how that went. Which he just continues to play that card. Never really works out for him. Never man. works out for him. Yeah. So this made things a bit awkward for uh, Yaccarino when she walked out on stage and things only got worse from there. Uh, let's listen to a clip. Elon Musk announced you're moving to an entirely subscription-based service. Yeah. Nothing free on about using X. Do you, Did he say we were moving to it specifically or is thinking about it? He said that's the plan. Yeah. So did he consult you before he announced that? We talk about everything. Who wouldn't want? Elon Musk sitting by their side, running product. I see a show of hands. I, there may be a few show of hands to get the cute chuckles you're getting, but I would say the percentages in this room are about 99% who would say no to that and 1% of Maybe personal opinion. <laughs> oh, my God. The secondhand embarrassment, I feel. So the context for that last clip, which makes it so much worse, yeah. is that she was being asked, like, a polite roundabout way of saying, like, are you just a figurehead CEO? Was like, isn't it weird that Elon Musk continues to run product at your company, yeah, not because you, the CEO? All the product teams report directly to Elon. Right. And so Julie was saying, aren't you more of a COO? Or she said a, a CEO in name only. And to which um, uh, Linda said, uh, that's it's not, not nice. nice. <laughs> you know what? It's not. <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's complain to Elon. He's yeah, the one who did right, it. Right. So that was awkward. How do you, here's the thing, folks. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to agree to an interview, first of all. <laughs> if you're not going to be prepared for an interview, you don't have to go. Yeah. You don't have to book it. She booked it. She chose to go to the code conference and get, and, and, and do this interview and there's, you know, there's some complaints by like Elon and the Elon fanboys and some other idiots on X, Twitter, whatever, uh, <laughs> who are like, oh, you know, Kara sandbagged her by booking Yol last minute and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, first of all, most of the problems in that interview did not come from her having to respond to what Yol said 
an hour before that. Most of them came because she didn't know basic. Like, how do you not know? How do you yeah. not know that Elon told BB Netanyahu, which is where you you always want to roll out your new product, uh, your new product moves to BB, um, that uh, Twitter was going to move to subscription. The questions asked in this interview were the most obvious, foreseeable questions no gotcha she possibly could have. And every time it was like she had never considered the question in her life, which is start- like she got asked about the like ADL suing Twitter, like the Elon Musk anti-Semitism thing. And Yaccarino's answer was everyone deserves to speak their opinion. And then she looked at her watch and said she had to go. <laughs> <laughs> what an incredible Nixon. Anti-Semitism. Whoops, it's getting pretty late. I'm going to pull that next time you ask me a question on a pod. I don't know the answer to. I'm going to say, well, I have to leave, unfortunately. Uh, and it just like yak the attack. fact that she had not yak even. Yak. Don't talk at all. It you know? really like it really gives you. <laughs> wow. It really gives you pause to be like. Not only it seems like not only is she just a figurehead, which I think we all knew, but like it seems like she is like not staffed. Yeah. Like if she had any staff, they would be like, here are the questions you're going to get. Here are some bullshit answers to give. It's fine. And she was the most sympathetic audience in the world and like couldn't hold on to them. And it just like – and I think she hasn't thought of these questions in her own head. That's the thing that blows my mind. If like you're a figurehead CEO, like whatever. We all take paycheck jobs occasionally. Like I get it. But you would think for your own like ability to look in the mirror in the morning, mm. you would have some answer for yourself about like why this is okay or what your role is. But it was like no feels one like had asked her that, including herself. It feels like she hasn't really thought through that life choice. Might want to mulligan on that life choice. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, also, it's just like even if she was well prepared, it mm-hmm. is quite difficult to defend everything Elon Musk has done over the last however many months that he has been in control of this platform. All InPod does it every week. <laughs> and, they, and, and I tip my hat to them. I tip right. my hat to she them. She had listened to one episode of the All In Podcast. She would have she been would have so well prepared for it. Yeah. She's clearly not. I mean, like, I see her tweeting once in a while, but I don't think she's a, a an avid user. At least she doesn't know what's going on on the platform at and, the time. And someone noticed, not even on the home screen on her phone. She held up the phone. <laughs> Twitter's not on No, it. there was no Twitter on the home screen and, that we could see. And settings in the dock, which is iconic. What? <laughs> settings in the dock? That's a, that's a boomer behavior. What are you doing? So I think it is, I think this is actually like, significant beyond just being like Linda Yaccarino uh, like I'm so sorry I'm not trying to be mean like clearly a figurehead clearly like not plugged in at all to the decisions of the company seeing the crowd which is the like Silicon Valley like elite Mm -hmm. laughing at her openly I think really tells you something about where people see not just her but Twitter and X and the Silicon Valley ecosystem like even Silicon Valley is like this company is a train wreck garbage fire that's really bad. Yeah. And also her performance on this really matters more of just PR, but because she has to give the same spiel this coming week to Twitter's creditors. Yeah. Twitter owes $13 billion. She's going to New York in a couple of days to meet with the bankers that have made these loans who are panicked and apoplectic to try to convince them that she can steer the ship, that she's got the company under control. Elon Musk very pointedly is not coming with her. And if she turns in this kind of performance, it's going to start to have real consequences for the company. You don't think that the lenders will be persuaded when she tells them that (laughs) more people watched Tucker Carlson's interview of Donald Trump than exist in the world? (laughs) And then humans that have ever or will ever exist. (laughs) 
You don't think they're going to buy that? No, um, no. One of the bankers, uh, of course, anonymously, told the Financial Times, she has to get him out. They need the dollars to come back. Their hair is on fire. They didn't want to, we know we've talked about this before, Twitter's creditors did not want to hold on to these loans at all. They wanted to make the loans and then they wanted to sell it to other investors, but they can't because they cannot even find buyers for these loans at 60 cents on the dollar. That is how little people think of Twitter's ability to pay back debt that is worth only a quarter of the company when Elon Musk bought it. And so I think when they see that like revenue is down 60 percent by Musk's own admissions. And when they see Linda Yaccarino come in and she'd be like, I don't even know what the plan is for subscriptions. I don't even know what's happening at my own company where I'm CEO. I think they're going to panic. Yeah. At one point, uh, Julie was like, well, so but you you came from the world of advertising. You know that. And so don't you find it a little odd that you would stop trying to sell advertising for Twitter and just go to subscription? <laughs> and she's like, I was brought in to run this company, not to sell advertising. It's like. So are you going to subscription? Anyway, <laughs> back to anti-Semitism. No, I, <laughs> Elon and I talk about everything. <laughs> Do you think they're going to go to subscription? We never, we haven't talked about this on the show. What a great question. Uh, I think I don't destroy know. They floated it, it a lot. I know. We, I know every new development we say is going to like kill Twitter, but yeah. I think you make everyone pay. That I don't. I mean, when, when you start to throw up the paywall, people are just not going to. They're not going to continue to log on. I mean, it's it's like the same problem with you have enough outages you make it hard enough to access the service people are going to stop using it i have to imagine that for that reason cooler heads are going to prevail also if they're going to have a subscription model they're going to have to build it using who using right. what engineers yeah not linda yagarino <laughs> <laughs> or, you're not you're not excited to be coding next to linda <laughs> show of hands show of hands um okay so after the break my conversation with brian stelter of course, he's formerly of CNN. Now he's a host of Inside the Hive podcast at Vanity Fair. He's got a, a new book out that's that's coming out November 14th. It's called Network of Lies, the Epic Saga of Fox News, Donald Trump, and the Battle for American Democracy. We had a great conversation. We, uh, we talked about all the uh, succession drama at Fox now that Rupert Murdoch has stepped down oh as chairman. God. Really big deal. What did you think when you, when you heard that news? I, I, I honestly, deal? my, I, I first had questions where I think that like so much of how, and this is why I'm really excited for Brian's interview, so much of what this means for Fox News and therefore American democracy depends on the inner mechanics of a like set of like 10 or 20 personalities within Fox News. Yeah. And that is something that is, it's like really opaque. And so that was why I was really excited to hear from people like Brian specifically, who has been so smart on cable news for so long yeah. on like kind of help me understand where does this going to take us because it could it could go a lot of different directions i think and i will say like michael wolf also has a, a book out about this yeah, michael but, wolf says a lot of things right and that's why <laughs> so it's like michael wolf's out there doing like the the you know the succession fantasy version sure, of this yeah, yeah. but brian as he tells me has done like a lot of reporting he's like gone to fox he's talked to people as everything is like very well sourced so i'm very excited for brian's book and we had a great conversation about fox and then we also had a good conversation just about the future of cable and network television and journalism and you know how do you uh, how do all the different ways that we consume information now sort of bear on the larger democratic project small d democratic project what are the languages you think fox news is going to use the spotify app to translate itself to <laughs> You think Arabic language Fox News is going to be big? You think that's going to be big, yeah. They're already translating Tucker into Russian. 
So there's an audience there. Oh for, my God. It's your big market, Fox. It's, it's brutal. Anyway, fantastic conversation with Brian, which will be up right after the break. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Brian Stelter, welcome to Offline. Thank you, I think. I'm not sure what to expect. (laughs) Well, I know you have a... uh... A very timely book coming out soon about Fox News. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you all about uh, Rupert Murdoch stepping down as chairman and the future of the network. But first, how much rewriting have you had to do since the news broke? Well, that's a very sensitive question uh, because uh, <laughs> earlier today I was going over the PDF, making sure that the uh, the, the new paragraphs about Rupert were in the right place, uh, were formatted the right way. And now I'm just hoping that nothing else happens to him between now and November. Oh yeah, that's right. That's a, uh, let's. Well, you know, he's ninety three, so I just want I just <laughs> well, want a totally normal, calm fall. But look, he he did me a solid. You know, he announced his quote unquote. You know, well, he didn't call it this. His aides called it a semi retirement, and and he announced right. it right on the last week that I was allowed to make changes to my book, and it's all going to take effect in mid November when the book comes out. So. I'd like to think Rupert did it for me, but I'm not quite that uh, naive. Oh, so it sounds like, yeah, so it sounds like the timing is uh, <laughs> is pretty okay then. Uh, so my f- my first reaction to the news was that it wasn't a big deal because Lachlan, who's taken over for his father, is like even more conservative in terms of the future of Fox. And that, it seems to be true for the time being, but I hadn't realized that when Rupert dies, Lachlan and his three siblings, who aren't that conservative, each get a vote on the question of what happens to Fox next. So what are the different possibilities of what might happen at that point, And which do you think is most likely? Right. Well, I do see short-term and long-term implications. Short-term, you could make the case that this is a good thing for Donald Trump because Rupert Murdoch, for all of his warts and flaws, of which we could spend an entire episode talking about, he was internally a sharp Trump critic. You know, internally, he was the one saying, we're going to make Trump a non-person after January 6th. So to the extent that he is... Uh, diminished, removed, less powerful, less influential, uh, you know, that could bode well for Trump at Fox in the short term. In the long term, anything could happen. You're, you're right. Anything could happen. And it is very much up in the air because we don't really know where all the siblings stand. We know that Lachlan is the chosen son. We know that Rupert 
wants him to be in charge long into the future. My view about Rupert's announcement was that it was mostly a signal to the siblings. It was mostly a signal to the siblings and to the marketplace that Rupert has made his choice no matter what. And as a source said to me, and I added this to the book, you know, just a couple of days ago, uh, a source said to me, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but it was something to the effect of now the siblings would have to expressly overrule their father's wishes, right? The, the father has made the wishes very clear. And if they make a change, they are explicitly overruling him, which could very well happen, right? Because as you alluded to, James Murdoch wants nothing to do with the current version of Fox News. He's disgusted by the current version of Fox News. He very much wants change and has plans for change. But what his two sisters do, his sister Elizabeth and his half-sister Prudence, that's very much up in the air. Those are the X factors. And uh, if I were sitting here having to to guess what could happen, you know, I think I would probably lean toward a sale, you know, some sort of spinoff, some sort of asset sale, divestiture, as opposed to some dramatic uh, takeover. But now that I've said that on the podcast, now I regret it because I'm going to be wrong. <laughs> and so I'm hoping that this audio is forgotten because it is it's just so uncertain. It's when I talk to sources in this world, they make so clear no one has any idea how it'll play out. What do we know about uh, Liz and Prudence and their politics and where they stand? Like how much how much reporting have you done on that? How much is known? A little bit is known. And the following, you know, comes from public appearances and non-public appearances. You know, Prudence is is not very visible at all. I would say she's mostly invisible. She's not involved in the companies. Um, and she likes it that way. She's a very anonymous figure. Liz is a little bit more visible. There was a moment during the Super Bowl on Fox where Rupert and Elon Musk and Elizabeth Murdoch were all in the same box. And that got tongues wagging in certain Murdoch world circles. Liz is the one who seems to be a bridge between James and Lachlan. Um, James and Lachlan don't speak directly. They have not spoken directly in years, mm. which is really sad on one level and really wild on another. Yeah. Um, but Liz is the bridge between them. And maybe that makes it harder to know exactly where her politics are on this matter. I also think there's a difference between personal politics and uh, interest in profits, interest in the, the cash money that flows off of this company. The cold, hard bottom line is that all of these kids have lots and lots and lots of Fox stock. And they're going to want a positive outcome for those shares, whether that means, you know, yanking Fox News back closer toward reality or whether it means selling off Fox News to some billionaire or some sovereign wealth fund. They're going to want a positive outcome. Well, let, let's play um, uh, resistance fantasy politics <laughs> for a second, because I did hear some reporting that like James has this vision where he wants to get the sisters on his side. And then uh, when Rupert dies you know the, the him and the two sisters because then outvote lachlan take over the company and he wants to then like make fox a force for good or de-radicalize it like in that scenario like how does that even work does he does he fire all the talent and start fresh like don't the ratings just crater at that point what happens to the audience like i don't know how that's even a possibility this is exactly the question that i have asked uh repeatedly and and here's the best answer i've i've heard the best answer I've heard is James does not want. Well, OK, the answer always starts with there is no plan because Rupert Murdoch is alive. Right. And right. James is busy with all of his companies. OK, so the answer always starts that way. Uh, he's on the board of Tesla. He has all these investments in streaming and et cetera. But then you go a little further. The answer is this. James is not trying to turn Fox News into 
I don't want to say MSNBC because I hate that false equivalency between Fox and MSNBC. It's total bullshit. But he's not trying to turn Fox News into a center-left network. He's not trying to do that. He would try to turn it into a center-right reality-based network. Mm. Right. And uh, what would that mean? Well, it it probably would not mean Sean Hannity at 9 p.m. after a couple of years, but it could very well mean a lot of the talent, a lot of the producers, a lot of the shows remain in place, but they are held to some... Gosh, I don't want you to make fun of me when I say this. They're they're held to some sorts of journalistic standards. Like yeah. they're held to some sort of norm. Like some somebody is doing some fact checking sometimes. <laughs> Which yeah. in the current version of Fox, it sounds crazy. I know. Right. Well, it sounds like, and and also with with his politics, and if it's center right, it's more like uh, instead of covering uh, the latest caravan from from Mexico. They're covering uh, tax cuts and and perhaps in a favorable right. light. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing, right? So so James and his wife Catherine they held a fundraiser for Biden last uh, fall mm-hmm. on the Upper East Side and, and their mansion on the Upper East Side, and you know. On one level, that is so revealing about the Murdoch family that one guy is holding fundraisers for Biden. The others are trying to destroy Biden with the network Fox News. But on another level, somebody said to me, look, it's not that James is this strident Democrat. It's that he's a moderate who wants to defend democracy. And if you're going to defend democracy, you're going to hold a fundraiser for Biden in 2022. Right. This gets to what we see all the time across political news bubbles about Republicans and moderates and and folks who would not normally identify as Democrats trying to come to the defense of the system. And so I think that's what we we would see from James, a pro-institutionalist, a pro-system, a pro-democracy version of Fox News. Yeah. So until that episode of uh, Succession happens, um, in (laughs) in the present reality, we've got Lachlan in charge of a Fox that has just settled one massive defamation suit, is facing more, lost its most popular primetime host, and has competitors like you know Newsmax and countless other right-wing media outlets nipping at its heels. What What's the plan to right the ship? Is there one? I don't think Lachlan thinks the ship is sinking. Do you? Okay, yeah, that's a good... That's a, I, 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 can, I mean, it certainly doesn't look like it from the outside, but I don't know what the sort of post-Dominion internal sort of wrangling has been, if at all. There are definitely some unknowns, and, and one is about what happens to all the other lawsuits. Dominion was settled, but Smartmatic is next. Smartmatic is very much a live issue. I mean, depositions are supposed to be getting underway. Smartmatic's not going to be willing to settle until they get what one lawyer called a second bite at the apple, meaning they get to go and read all the Dominion depositions. They get to read all the Dominion discovery, and then they get to go and try to find even more. (laughs) They get to go and try to get even more. So you can imagine a scenario where uh, some of Rupert Murdoch's or some of Lachlan Murdoch's emails did not get handed over to Dominion but would get handed over to Smartmatic. So who knows what Smartmatic's going to find? The point is Smartmatic's not going to want to settle until it finds everything. They're going to want maximum leverage. So that's a huge unknown. It's a huge wild card. There are also shareholder lawsuits. Uh, And there's this new primetime schedule without Tucker Carlson uh, that's not quite as popular as the one they used to have. I would argue that the ratings are coming back. The viewers are coming back. The Tucker Carlson fans, at least some of them, have migrated back to Fox. But it's still an unknown. Um, I think, though, when I when I say Lachlan doesn't think the ship is sinking, what I mean by that is that Fox News remains his profit engine. It remains the, the, the way that he brings in cash to then go make investments in streaming like Tubi or, or make other investments for Fox Corporation. Uh, so I think he looks at Fox News and says, by firing Tucker, he sent a very loud message. 
and we could debate what that message was. And I bet you, yeah, have I was going to say, what, would say, what is that? What is that message? <laughs> I I don't want to play Lachlan Murdoch here, but let me just I'll go yeah. along with it for a second. Uh, part of the shtick, um, he might say that he made Fox News ten percent uh, less crazy. He might say he made he made well he wouldn't say that because he he. He wouldn't he acknowledge defend, it was crazy in the he, first he, place. Yeah, and he defended Patriot Purge. I mean, he did internally. Like he he was able to defend it. So I don't want to say that, but I think I think Tucker's firing might be viewed, you know, down the line as Lachlan Murdoch sending a message to the rest of the staff, to the rest of the team, that no one's bigger than Fox, that no one can abuse the system the way Tucker did, that there is a limit to some of the conspiracy theories. I know it's hard to believe, but there is a limit to some of the conspiracy theorizing. You remember last uh, spring when Tucker got a hold of the um, Capitol Hill tapes, some mm. of the you know deleted scenes from the riot, and right. pretended like they showed a peaceful protest. So none of the other Fox shows ran with that story. None of the other Fox shows followed up on Tucker's so-called scoop. I think that was an early sign that Tucker was too far fringe even for Fox. When you look at what Jesse Waters does now in Tucker Carlson's old time slot, a lot of it is repulsive in my view, but it is not quite as far into the fringe land, as far into the wilderness as Tucker was. I think you know what I mean, John. I mean, Tucker was not, Tucker in 2023 was not the character that he was in 2017. Right. He he became unglued. And I, I do think Lachlan was sending a message to the rest of the staff, to the marketplace, to the public, that there are limits even on Fox. And that I suppose as a business calculation, just as a crass business calculation, it's better to appeal slightly more to the um, to the independents, to the so-called moderates that tolerate Sean Hannity <laughs> than it is to appeal to the Tucker Carlson fringe. Yeah. Am I making any sense? Because I don't even know if I believe it, but I think that's what Lachlan believes. Well, so the way I think about it, which is, it's pretty much the same, but a little slight difference is I've always thought that Hannity, Hannity's just like a Trump guy, right? Mm -hmm. He's like a Trump hack. He'll go out there. He'll say whatever Trump needs him to say, whatever the White House wants him to say. Like he's, he's the Trump guy. Yeah. Tucker was more invested in Trumpism. Um, And, and I think I've always thought Tucker was a little more dangerous in that regard because he has a theory of the case and he was he he says stuff to incite certain people and he knows that that could be inciting violence and he knows it can be radicalizing people and like i don't even know if if hannity's smart enough to figure that out like he's just sort of like the the company guy like spouting the company line when it comes to trump i think tucker has his own agenda that is independent of trump even though it is sometimes aligned with trump and i think that's been borne out by tucker's behavior since he was fired you know, yes. if, if you look at, and I've had people at Fox say to me, go look at what he's posting on X. That's exactly why we don't want to be in business with him. And the best slash worst example uh, was his interview with that Barack Obama accuser. Yeah. Um, there was a suggestion that he was trying to get away with stuff at Fox that he couldn't get away with. And so now he's doing it on his own off in the, <laughs> Where, I don't want to call it watching. swamp, the, yeah, the, the, the quicksand of X. And so I don't say that in order to defend Fox, but I, I say that in order to understand their business rationale, that it made more sense to lose some ratings in the short term, to take a publicity hit, to create a controversy, to create a, you know what happened when Tucker was fired? There's this whole conspiracy theory. There's all these conspiracy theories now about why was he really fired? It has set, you know, the far right on fire. And you can go and read 10 different theories about what really happened. And, and they're all bullshit. But, you know, 
I think Fox decided to take that risk in order to pull the channel just slightly back toward the, again, still hard right, but reality-based world. Maybe. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. So, obviously, Rupert was, uh, was well reported that he was he was done with Donald Trump. He initially tried to make DeSantis happen. You could argue, kind of see there was a little Nikki Haley boomlet uh, on Fox since the first debate. Now that Trump is 40 points ahead of everyone else and Lachlan's in charge, like, do you see any indications that Fox won't be 100 percent Trump? Like, are they, are they are, is the family or are people at Fox still trying to push other alternatives to Trump or are they just like throwing up their hands at this point? The way I see it, Trump leads and Fox follows. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they they resist that. They, they try to fight it. They try to pull away, you know, but at the end of the day, they always come back together. So I think that's what's been happening lately. Uh, certainly after January 6th, Fox made a very significant effort to pull away. Um, they said, we're not going to interview Trump live anymore. We're not going to interview him on the phone anymore. And that was partly because of the Dominion fallout and the desire not to be sued uh, by other uh, possible victims of defamation. But there were clear changes made to the approach toward Trump. Now, however, now that the polls show what the polls show, uh, Fox is following the base. And and that includes Rupert Murdoch, who I'm told, according to sources, has resigned himself uh, to the likelihood of, of a Trump uh, nomination by the GOP. Now, you know, we have seen the reporting that he's encouraging Glenn Youngkin and others to, to get into the race, to challenge Trump. You know, I, I, I'll believe it when I see it. And, and even if I see it, I'm not sure I'll believe it. Um, I mean, well, it's also it's I mean, it's it's obviously a ratings play as well, because <laughs> you think that we you know, we there's a, a, the, the second debate this week. First yeah. of all, it was like relegated to Fox business, which I found was interesting. I saw a report that the ad prices for that debate were like cut in half. And none of those Republican candidates make for really good television. 
you know? And so I'm sure, <laughs> I'm, I'm just sure that at Fox, they're probably thinking like, yeah, you know, if maybe maybe there's people at the top of Fox that don't want Trump as the nominee, but like, what else are they going to do? They've got to make TV and make money. At least that's the Fox view, probably. Well, I'm of two minds on this because, yes, Fox absolutely wanted Trump at both debates. I mean, look, Suzanne Scott and Jay Wallace drove out to Bedminster and, and right. begged Trump to show up. Uh, for the second debate, they were not so um, publicly <laughs> uh, um, eager. But I think clearly Fox wants Trump at the debates. That said, I think it's interesting how highly rated the debates have been without Trump. And and tell me if this is foolish, but the first debate, you know, 13 plus million viewers. The second debate, the ratings came in on, on Thursday. Uh, it was basically 9.5 million viewers across mm. Fox Business and Fox News and Univision. So look, they're, they're taking several networks, they're smashing them together. But still, let me try out an idea here. Almost 10 million people still wanted to watch the vice presidential debate. <laughs> and I, I kind of, I find a little bit of, um, not solace, I find that to be a little bit hardening. It makes me hope that there are a good number of Republican voters and independents and Democrats who are curious about the other candidates, even though they probably don't stand a chance. I mean, could, couldn't the ratings perhaps suggest to us that there is an appetite to move past Trump in the GOP and people are actually, well, I don't know. I sound crazy when I say it. <laughs> <laughs> but we see it in polls. We see we see in polls that at least there are four in 10 Republicans that say that Trump's not their first choice. They're There's open. Other data. That they're yeah. open, that they're open. And I think I heard this when I was in Iowa a couple of weeks ago talking with voters and I was talking with reporters there with Pointer Institute. And what I heard over and over again was there are Republican voters who really adore and admire Donald Trump, but they know they need a backup. They need a second choice. They're afraid or they're concerned that he'll end up in prison and they want to have a backup. And that might explain the ratings, the high ratings for the Fox debates. But it is a really interesting and frankly unusual phenomenon like to feel like you have to have a backup choice. Yeah. I mean, look, people slow down to see a car crash, too. But <laughs> I don't know if it's I mean, it's, it is. Inter I would not have guessed that. Uh, it would still get nine million. Again, it's you know they are smashing together a couple networks, but that's still a, that's a sizable. That's it's a not sizable nothing. audience. It's like not if nothing. you're Mike Pence, if, if if you're Ron DeSantis, it's not nothing. It means that you at least had a chance in front of a decent number. Now, the question, of course, is will each debate just have fewer and fewer viewers? You know, the next right. debate's in November. It's probably going to be on the NBC networks. Um, is this just going to be a situation of diminishing returns? And I think at the end of the day, you know, your questions about Fox and Trump. Fox will go home to Trump. Trump will go home to Fox. There are times where Trump tries to go on other networks. You know, he does interviews on Newsmax. He goes on random uh, far right blogs and podcasts you've never heard of. He, he is never accumulating 9.5 million viewers. He's never accumulating 13 million viewers. He's never reaching as many people in a single shot as he can through Fox. So as much as he rants and raves and, and, and moans about Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan and all the rest, he knows, he knows where his base is. And that's going to create one heck of a clash, I think, in 2024. So I've always thought that Fox has played a huge role in radicalizing their audience. I still do. But then after Dominion, like all the texts, emails, testimony made it pretty clear that Fox's content and editorial decisions have been based almost entirely on what they think their viewers want to hear because they're terrified of losing them to competitors. So I've wondered who's radicalizing who? <laughs> like, I, I, I'm wondering in which direction sort of the like, is it the viewers that are dictating what Fox puts on the air 
Or how much influence does Fox have in deciding that they want to move the base in a certain direction? I definitely think it goes both ways. But after reading all of the Dominion depositions and all the text messages and emails, and I've got like this two gigabyte file on my computer that I used um, to write Network of Lies, uh, networkoflies.com, pre-order. When when I went through this for the book, because I wanted to create like a a reconstruction of every day of November 2020 and what everybody inside Fox was saying that month, I came away believing the audience is more in charge than the producers, meaning the audience, you know, through the ratings every night, um, has more sway than the producers or the hosts. But it definitely goes both ways. For example, mid-November 2020, you know, when the Fox audience is upset about Trump losing, in denial about Trump losing, and really upset with Fox for saying that Arizona was going to go to Biden when it did go to Biden, but how dare Fox say that? There was, you know, the, the internal reaction against the decision desk, against the scientists who made the decision was so intense. And the producers and hosts were looking at the Nielsen ratings for guidance. And there was this moment where one of Sean Hannity's producers says to him, our best minutes from last week were on the voting irregularities. And what he meant by that were the minute by minute ratings. You know, wow. that is the Nielsen version of fentanyl. I never saw minute by minute ratings at CNN for, for my show Reliable Sources. I didn't know those existed. Wow. They do scary. exist. They are minute by minute. They look like a line graph up and down every minute based on the guest, the banner, the topic, the commercial break. And some of the behavior is predictable, right? Like when you go to commercial, there's always a dip. But when you put on you know, Trump aligned lawyer, Sidney Powell, you're going to get a spike. When you put on... <laughs> I don't know, Pete Buddha judge, you're going to get a decline. You're going to get a big yeah. drop. So what this producer was saying was not just, hey, I know what guests are most popular. He was saying, talking about fraud is the most popular thing. Like what our viewers really, really, really want to hear right now, what they need to hear is about voting irregularities. And I, I thought that was so frightening because I've heard about minute by minute ratings used at the Today Show or GMA um, to figure out you know, what celebrity to put at the 8 a.m. hour. To hear producers using those those ratings to say, we need to lie more, like we need to lie more loudly, <laughs> that's another level of uh, crazy. And uh, that's not the only example, but that's one that popped up uh, when I went through these filings. I think it shows that the audience is more in charge than than any other force, you know, because the host can believe whatever the host believe. The executives at Fox certainly did not believe the big lie. It's very clear that by mid-November, they had moved on. And, and Rupert said that under oath as well. He had moved on. But the ratings, the audience was basically dictating what was happening. And that, you know, makes you realize that the fever swamps and the internet uh, of whether it's right wing, you know, outlets or blogs or fucking comment sections or wherever it may be. <laughs> yeah. Like, these are really they can have a, a huge effect on oh. not just the Republican base, but then the loudest and biggest megaphone for Republican conservative politics, which remains Fox News. Look, the best example of that is from the weekend that Biden was projected to be president-elect. And this example is still relevant today because it could very well happen in 2024. Maria Bartiromo is heartbroken because her president has lost the election. You know, Fox's decision desk has said Biden's the winner. Bartiromo's on the next morning, Sunday morning, and she needs to give her viewers hope. False hope, of course, but hope. So she latches onto this email from some random viewer who admits she's a wackadoodle 
this email full of crazy ideas, uh, this email that says that Dominion, this company Dominion, with these crazy links to Democratic politicians, is somehow responsible for flipping votes. And Bartiromo goes on the air with Sidney Powell, and she basically reads part of the email verbatim. Even though she admitted later she never fact-checked it, she didn't call the person and ask about it, she didn't like Google about it, she didn't do anything. She just read this you know, viewer's fan letter out loud on live television, hoping it's true. And that was the first mention of Dominion on Fox. It was before Donald Trump mentioned Dominion. So all of the drama, all of the defamation lawsuits, all of the settlement stuff, it wasn't Trump driving the story. It was this random fan emailing Sidney Powell and then forwarding it to Maria Bartiromo. And then Maria gets on the phone with Eric Trump and tells Eric about it. And when I realized that the Dominion thing was not this top-down orchestrated plot from the White House, you know, that it was actually just like one desperate fan emailing one desperate TV host. I found that to be really sick. I mean, and uh, my description of, of Donald Trump has always been like uh, uh, Fox's biggest fan that became president of the United States, right? So it's like, <laughs> and then Donald Trump sees something on Fox that Maria Barbaroma says, and then he says it, and that's then right. he ends up radicalizing more people that's because they're like, happened. well, Donald Trump said it. So it really that's is. That's what happened. Yeah, that's the, that's the cycle. Within so, five days, Trump was tweeting the word Dominion, and, <laughs> and that is exactly how it happened. He saw it actually on Sean Hannity's show because Hannity copied Bartiromo. And it is such a sad, and by the way, I think it's self-defeating. I don't know what you think, John. I think this ultimately hurts Trump. It hurts the audience. It hurts the GOP. They may not realize it. They may be too addicted to the Fox, you know, um, message machine to realize it. But when you're told in 2022, there's going to be a red tsunami every day, and then there's not, I actually think this messaging, this propaganda hurts the party. Look, I wish that that was the, the case, and and I do think it hurts him to an extent in uh in a general election, right? His approval rating and his favorability rating is still terrible. Look, I think about this from a political angle and an electoral angle, and it's like the country's very polarized, and Joe Biden won the last election by forty thousand votes across three states, and so if Trump has the Republican nomination and he has a rabid base who maybe don't vote in midterms, but they come out to vote when Donald Trump is on the ballot, then getting them all whipped up and excited, that benefits him and it benefits him in a high turnout, close election. You know, mm -hmm. um, I think right. long term, it certainly has not been good for the GOP. <laughs> right? Like they've now lost a series of elections. Um, but all it takes, you know, when the when the party is that radicalized as the Republican yeah. Party is now, all it takes is winning one. Um, and, and the flip and, side of this is that Fox and Newsmax and all of these right wing media outlets, they also guide Trump and guide the candidates into what the audience cares about most, into what the base wants to hear most. Do you remember that rally that Trump had in North Carolina a couple months ago where he mentioned, um, quote, transgender insanity? Yeah. What happened was people got up and started cheering. And, and he says, I can't believe this. You know, I talk about taxes and y'all just yawn. But I talk about transgender and everyone goes crazy. It was almost as if what Fox had been feeding the audience about transgender issues was coming back to Trump and yep. Trump kind of taken aback by it, but learning from it. You sometimes see him at rallies learning from what the base wants. Well, and that's also he's he's learning. He's learning about what the base wants. But I also think that was a signal in the general 
that he's thinking to himself, you know, I know the base gets excited about this this trans stuff, but I don't. Oh. When I get to the general, I think this is where he, this is why he is trying to do what oh. he's doing on abortion too. Like interesting, I think, and you can see it. I saw him in that in the interview with Tucker hmm. um, after the first debate. So you were the one person that watched. I, that. Okay, it's, it's even worse, Brian. Sorry. I was I was on vacation and. <laughs> I decided to watch the debate anyway. And then afterwards, my wife, Emily, is like, you know what? I, I know you want to watch the Trump Tucker interview. Let's just we'll put the laptop in bed and we can watch it there. So that's that's what I did. It was really bad. But um, he, did Emily t- watch it, too? She did, too. Although she fell asleep halfway through. Thank God. Um, I'm not allowed to watch that stuff at home. anymore. <laughs> no, she she wants to. You have a really a you have a wonderful wife. That's so generous. Of her. I do. It is. Um, but. You know, at one point, Tucker's leading him down this path about, you know, Jeffrey Epstein and was there a cover up? And you can see that even Donald Trump in that moment is like, the fuck are you talking about, man? Oh, like, totally. <laughs> totally. Like, this is what I mean. want to go down there. Like, That's yeah. what I mean about Lachlan and Fox. They don't want to be associated with Tucker. You, you see what Tucker's doing now. He did it with Trump. He did it with Bill O'Reilly. He keeps implying that Trump's going to be assassinated, that the deep state's going to take out Trump. And that's the kind of thing I think he would be saying on Fox if he had not been yanked off the air. Yeah. All right. So I have a question that's sort of beyond just Fox. Like, this is a network that's struggling with some of the same challenges that is long-term challenges that are facing other television news outlets, uh, you know, including the, the one you just left. Audiences are getting older. Oh, that was so nice of you. Left. <laughs> you, mean, you mean fired. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll let you characterize it. Audiences, audiences are getting older. Most people under 65 getting their news from just about anywhere else. Oh, yeah. Ad revenues tanking, streaming and digital alternatives uh, haven't really worked yet for anyone. Is TV news dying? Is it in trouble? Can it be saved? If not, like, what's next? How are people getting there? How are people getting, like, trusted information? Well, if TV news is dying, and it is to some extent, it's been dying for a while. So Mm. I I would say sometimes this might speed up, it might slow down, but this is a trend we've seen for a while. When I was at the New York Times, I wrote a piece must have been 15 years ago at this point that I uh, about how young people consume information and the the memorable quote from it was that young people consume news like a sponge you know they don't even know where they get it they just sponge it up they soak it up they get it from wherever they get it they expect the news to come to them they don't expect to go and get it and I think that's even more true today mm-hmm. information is you know you expect it to come to you you're going to get it a, a thousand different ways When it comes to television news, though, in particular, uh, you know, the network where I worked at CNN, um, I like to embrace the word fired. You know, it was like the best thing that ever happened to me. Good. I got got to be a stay at home dad for a while and really, really embrace it. But, you know, at CNN, I was hosting a CNN Plus show. Do you remember CNN Plus? Uh, Briefly, yes. (laughs) Yes, because it only lasted for a month. You know, it was a streaming service that lasted for one month. It was an experiment to figure out how to build that future, you know, news outlet. Now they're doing it again. They have a channel on the Max app, uh, all with CNN streaming programming 24-7. So I think every network is doing a version of that, you know, trying to figure out what is the streaming option? What's the option that's going to be available to people when they want it, where they want it? Uh, Fox News has it too. It's called Fox Nation. Uh, it's not doing that well because yeah. if it was doing really well, they would tell us how many people had paid for it. Um, but I'm told it has a couple of million subscribers. You know, Fox News reaches, you know, about 70 million cable households. So something streaming for Fox is not going to be a replacement for Fox News. But it is a life raft. You know, it is something that they can use to, to try to swim or, or, or row or whatever. I'm not a big boat guy. What do you do? You <laughs> use a life raft to get to the future. You know, yeah. at least they're building options. They're building alternatives. And I think that's the, the phase that we're in right now. 
other than the New York Times, which has an enviable number of subscribers and has really figured out how to keep people paying online. Yeah. Everybody else is, is putting life rafts in the water and trying lots of things and seeing what works. I mean, I feel like almost every shift in the way that people consume information over the last decade has made it harder to maintain a functioning democracy, which requires us to pay attention, have patience, be open to other points of view, and uh, most importantly, exist in some kind of shared reality. Am I being too pessimistic? Are there are there developments that have made the project of democracy a little easier? <laughs> I am actually as pessimistic as you are, if not more, yeah. which I hate to say because I try to be an optimist and I try to teach same. my kids I'm to Same, I'm the same optimists. way, but it's tough, yeah. Um, but when it comes to the media ecosystem and, and, and this environment, it feels to me like everybody is being poisoned. And the reason I say that is, you know, information pollution, you know, propaganda, this poison that's in the atmosphere. For example, the big lie of 2020, everybody gets affected. Everybody takes it in. The people that live closest to it, you know, the proverbial plant or the proverbial factory, they, they get the sickest, but everybody gets sicker. And what I don't see are ways uh, to combat that that are as successful as the propagandists. Um, you know, the, the way I think about it is, the real news media, the reality-based news media, has to be louder than the liars. We have to find ways to raise our voices so that we're louder than the liars. But that is awfully hard to do because you're immediately accused of being polarizing, of being uh, ideological, of being partisan, of being biased, of being sensational, being all of it, just because you're trying to be louder than the liars. But I do think there are signs of hope. I mean, I have to turn. I'm an optimist. I got I to gotta find signs of hope. Um, I look at all the nonprofit news outlets that are growing, that are expanding. Yes, there's going to be bumps along the way, but there are lots and lots of these startups that are trying to create new news organizations to replace some of what's been lost. And especially when you get beyond politics, they're working. You know, there's there's a hunger for news that's not just political, that's not just about your city council or your board of education or your, your Senate race. There's a hunger for news that is, you know, more broadly speaking and more palatable to people that's you know not just defined by who you are and what you represent and who you hate. You know what I mean? There's there's an interest in news that's beyond just the partisan warfare. Yeah, I just. The, the, You're gonna say no, Brian. You're bullshit. No, because I've been, I've I've heard you say um, you've got to be louder than the liars, which is absolutely true. That I think like the challenge is the truth isn't always that. It's not it's not easy to make the truth that loud or interesting or sexy. You know what I'm saying? It's like the, the yeah. kind of journalism that we would want for a functioning democracy, which is like responsible. Like, you know, well-researched, well-sourced journalism, just telling the story like it is like it's hard for that to break through. And to and when you when you try to break through, you necessarily get a little, you know, you you try to you yeah. have clickbait and you whip up outrage. You're controversial. And right. Controversial. Right. And you're writing headlines that people are going to click on. And I mean, like we, you know, we we have a media company here now and we do the same thing. You like find out that the that the, the rants about Donald Trump get a lot more views than like a long explanation about some policy. Right. And it's just like this is what the audience wants. And like, what the fuck do we do about it? Well, number one, the audience is not always wrong. Uh, what you just described indicates that the audience recognizes a grave threat to American democracy. Yes, that is true. That is true. Um, uh, hey, love you, audience. Love you, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but let me take it out of the media conversation for just a moment, because I was watching this House, what do we even call it? Impeachment inquiry? It's like yeah. a pre-impeachment. It's like a yeah, premature impeachment. Yeah, some hearing. Um, I was watching this hearing on Thursday, and the most memorable moments 
all of the clipped moments, all of the social media videos, they were all Democrats. They were all people trying to be louder than the liars. Like they were yeah. all from lawmakers who figured out ways to use their 30 seconds in really powerful, uh, vivid ways. And I, I wondered, you know, again, it's, it's not journalism that is clearly, you know, advancing a political agenda, but they knew what they were doing. They came yeah. prepared. They yeah. came a lot more prepared than the Republicans who had no clip worthy, newsworthy moments. And I do think there's a version of that that applies in news as well. It applies in the information space. It applies in, you know, the policy wonk space. I think I think there's a version of that, that does apply more broadly. I think that's right. I think it's no coincidence that a lot of the members that have been successful uh, at doing that are younger. Yes, um, there's yes. a, so there's a generational issue there, too. I also think that humor or at least lightheartedness is a good tool in this because I think there's a lot of people both in politics and media who you know take the their subject matter seriously but also take themselves maybe a little too seriously oh geez and- John I live in New Jersey and I'm so jealous of my Pennsylvania neighbors <laughs> right. look at what Senator Fetterman's doing I know with, uh, See, that's- with his Twitter feed I right. mean, I'm right I'm stuck here in Jersey yeah and you can be and I think you can be funny and you can poke fun at the absurdity of politics and media without yes. you know misinforming people or whipping people up or ginning up too much outrage that's not deserved so I, I do think there's possibilities there one last question for you you've been very generous with your time I feel like when you were at CNN you were one of the biggest news and political junkies in the business weekly show <laughs> nightly newsletter um, I know you haven't completely unplugged because you're you're still tweeting and writing and podcasting and you're on TV but do you feel like stepping off the hamster wheel, has changed your perspective on media and politics at all? And like, have you been able to reduce your news intake even a little or how how has your perspective changed? Yes, it has completely changed my perspective. And, you know, I said earlier, getting fired was the best thing that ever happened to me. So was having to get off the news hamster wheel and and not have to care so much. I used to spend Saturday nights, you know, I'd be in bed. I'd be worried about what's going to happen Sunday morning. What was going to happen? What should I do on my show? What guests should I have on? You know, should I cancel John Favreau? Like (laughs) in in my head, I was always, you know, I was always on. And to be off makes me think a lot differently about the news ecosystem and like how the news world functions and sometimes doesn't function. So, So what I mean by that is, the news industry is really, really well built and really, really well serves news junkies. You know, people like you and me, uh, yeah. people that care deeply about politics. You could watch and listen forever. There's never an ending. Um, if you're a more casual news consumer, if you're someone who just instinctively is very, very skeptical or just does not care that much, does not want to be bombarded, the news industry as it works does not really function well for you. It does not feed you what you're looking for. I, I just think there's a huge opening, a huge vacuum for more casual news consumers. Not people who are never going to vote, but people who might not vote. You know, People who are on the fence, people who... Here's another way I think about it. We oftentimes, in, and I say we because I'm still writing for Vanity Fair and doing stuff and I got this book. Like We always start our stories in the middle and not in the beginning. Look at the government shutdown that we're about to go through, most likely. Like we always talk about the shutdown, about how many votes for the CR and what's going to happen next in the in the House, the Senate. How about starting the story with why is the government open and what does the government do for you every day? What do these government employees do to help your life or hurt your life? But what do they do every day? Right. And why is the Republicans are always the ones trying to shut it down? Like the story never starts in the beginning. And as I look at this from the outside and I think about startup opportunities and stuff. I think about how to serve more casual news consumers. 
Yeah. I think that's the great opening. No, I think about that for I think about that from a political perspective all the time because political scientists have done a lot of research on this and you know they say that there's 20% of the electorate is uh, pays very close attention to the news and to politics and 80% does not and it doesn't mean that they never tune into the news it doesn't mean they don't consume it but they dip in and out and they're more right. casual news consumers and most of them vote <laughs> and you know they don't like you said they don't vote in every election but they vote and a lot of times they make and they don't necessarily always vote for the same party. So right. they make their decision based on sort of what's out there in the ether, the general news environment and trying to shape that environment and to give people good information, I think, is um, and, and to do it in a way that is sustainable from a business perspective, which is the which is the trick. Right. I think that's that's sort of the project for um, for the next generation of uh, of journalists. Yeah, it's been really good to be on the outside and think about all the flaws with the current system. Not because I want to tear it down. I don't. I, I love the American news media. I, I lived in it for almost 20 years. But I do see ways to make it better. You know, we oftentimes have the most interest in a news story when there's the least amount of information. You know, yeah. something's breaking news and you know we really know absolutely nothing about it. But that's when everybody wants to know everything. And then right. by the time we actually know all the facts... Almost everybody's moved on. There's yeah. got to be a better way. That's why when I spent all this time with all these Dominion filings and I'm thinking, wow, we all heard like 10 amazing quotes from the filings. We all heard Rupert Murdoch saying, let's make Trump a non-person. We all heard Tucker Carlson saying, I hate Trump passionately. And, and yet when you dig a little deeper, you find all these amazing revelations that are there for the taking, that are in public filings, but never actually surfaced, never actually became public. And that's, that's why I did Network of Lies, because I felt like there were so many details in here that needed to, to be surfaced. And um, I think that's true on every story. I think that's true across every beat, that um, we have to figure out ways to get off of that breaking news cycle and more into, okay, something's broken, here's how to fix it. Yeah. That's the more interesting service we can do as journalists. Brian Stelter, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining Offline. The book is Network of Lies. You can pre-order it now, networkoflies.com. Is that yes, right? Yes, you can. It'll there be out November 14th. November 14th. I'm very excited to read it. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Emma Illick-Frank is our associate producer. Andrew Chadwick is our sound editor. Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos sound engineered the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Amelia Montooth, and Sandy Gerard for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Rachel Gajewski, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. Could civil rights be in danger because of a case about hotel websites? This is the Supreme Court we're talking about, so you bet. The court's back in session, and strict scrutiny is just the pod you need to make this term a little less scary. Each week, Melissa Murray, Leah Littman, and Kate Shaw unpack what's on the docket for this term and help you keep up with the slew of legal news headed our way. Listen to new episodes of Strict Scrutiny each week wherever you get your podcasts. Also, tickets to Pod Save America's live shows this fall and winter are available now. We will be joined by amazing guests for our next live show in D.C. That's going to be on October 19th. We tried to get Bob Menendez, but just didn't have enough uh, gold bars in the budget. Nevertheless, tickets are almost sold out. Join us for live shows in cities like Louisville, Cleveland, New Orleans, San Diego, and San Jose. 
Head to Gregor.com slash events to get yours today. Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.